0: Welcome back to G.I. Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast, where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 50. Yes, we made it to episode 50. A big deal for me. If you haven't left a review on iTunes or whichever app you use to listen to the podcast, please do so. It really helps others discover the podcast. And if you have papers you want me to read, send them to info at gipurls.com. All right, let's go to the journals, shall we? The first paper was actually reviewed on a recent GI Journal Club on Twitter, but I already read it, so I'm going to tell you about it anyway. And it is interesting. Do you use ORIs or some other lifting agent to remove polyps? Doing ESD or EMR, lifting solutions are very helpful. Now, it used to be that everyone would make a giant bag of it for the whole endoscopy department once a day, and you would just take a little bit of it to use for your cases. And now we've got three companies making it, and charging an arm and a leg for it, but here we are. This next paper is out of the University of Chicago, took specimens of ESD and AMR and surgical resection specimens to see what kind of histological changes occur in these specimens, specifically when you use ORISE gel as your lifting solution. And it appears that it is possible to an ORISE for mucin and classify your resection specimens as mucinous adenocarcinoma, but thankfully most pathologists will not be fooled and there are some things you can do to look out for it. But please tell your pathologist that you are lifting and which agent you are using to lift your specimens. It really helps them. Overall, it seems easier to recognize the goo on the resection of freshly injected specimens. And when it takes a while, like a month or two, that portion of the colon is surgically removed, there is infiltration of the area with eosinophils, giant cell reaction, and inflammation forms in the submucosa. So these things potentially could mimic mucin, amyloid, and granulomas. Again, you just have to tell your pathologist what you did, and they will not make any errors, but they never do that anyway, right? I think these days it's pretty hard to fool a pathologist, thankfully. Best papers when they talk about differences in guidelines between different sources give you a nice little table to summarize so you can see the differences for yourself. This is the case with this next paper out of GIE, February issue. They looked at prevalence of Barrett's in unscreened population and looked at performance of different guidelines. Title is Prevalence of Barrett's Esophagus and Performance of Societal Screening Guidelines in an Unreferred Primary Care Population of U.S. Veterans. This was a retrospective cross-sectional study of patients from primary care clinics who got upper endoscopy. Then they looked at how many Barrett's cases were captured and looked at performance of each societal guidelines to see how much disease each one captured. And it's an interesting conclusion, and I have to read a paragraph for you since it's kind of provoking. Quote, over half of BE cases were without frequent GERD symptoms, but virtually all had at least one known Barrett's risk factor. Practice guidelines requiring GERD symptoms have low sensitivity, whereas those not requiring it have low specificity. End quote. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And of course, they proposed a screening pathway of their own. It's a two-step one, and I'm not sure if I followed completely, but it looks like they improved the sensitivity and specificity of screening. Another interesting tidbit had to do with symptoms. Quote, Barrett's case-only analysis, the only significant difference between symptomatic and asymptomatic cases on univariate analysis was higher use of PPI and H2RA among symptomatic cases there were no difference in overall BE length between symptomatic and asymptomatic cases. Hmm, doesn't seem to matter if you have symptoms or not when it comes to Barrett's. I don't think this is anything new, but I find it interesting. I have to quote their discussion section again here, which summarizes everything better than I can. Quote, our data show that conditioning BE screening guidelines on the presence of GERD symptoms, or the lack of conditioning in the case of the AGA, comes at a heavy price as far as performance of these screening guidelines. Barrett's occurs in a large proportion without frequent GERD symptoms, 58% of all Barrett's cases in our study, which would lead to an underdiagnosis of Barrett's if guidelines recommended that only those with frequent GERD symptoms are referred for screening. Therefore, the guidelines by ASGE, ACG, BSG, and ESGE, which all recommend screening only in those with GERD, and multiple other risk factors had a high specificity in the study population of 75 to 78%, but a low sensitivity, 39 to 43%. Conversely, the AGA, which had 100% sensitivity, had virtually no specificity, only 0.2%, as Barrett's risk factors were so prevalent in this study population. All screening guidelines had a low area under the curve, ranging from 0.5 to 0.6. End quote. So, ultimately, if you're going to make a dent in esophageal cancer, endoscopic screening is just too crude to find cases. Who knows, even if we can make a dent once we find Barrett's, but that's a story for another day. I like this paper a lot, and I actually, again, like the table of comparing all the guidelines. I think it's useful to see it all on one page, so go take a look. I tweeted a picture of this recently, so... Go in my Twitter thread if you want to see it on Twitter. I don't often talk about pediatric gastroenterology in this podcast, and somebody wagged their finger at me. I guess this is my way of correcting it a little bit. Chronic constipation is a real issue in PDGI world, so this next paper, which John Damianus made me aware of, by the way, is interesting. This paper looked at efficacy of olive oil enemas for treatment of severe constipation. 1 to 2 milliliters per kilogram of olive oil enemas were given either alone or followed several hours by a glycerin enema. They looked at 115 patients. 49 had functional constipation, some had anorectal malformation, and 40 had Hirschsprung's disease. And there were other maladies as well. Fecal impaction was successfully treated in almost 80% of these patients. This is great. Anything that avoids sedation for manual disimpaction is great. It seems that this type of enema would be readily available, and it looks like olive oil enemas also are less likely to give you side effects like fissures or need to use osmotic laxatives, which sometimes take too long to work in such situations. I think this is something certainly worth trying. To my only PGI doc who is listening to this, please let me know if you've tried this and how effective this is. Now I want to know if this could be used in adults. Maybe the milk and molasses enemas are on the way out who knows? Rutger's scoring system for post-op recurrence of Crohn's disease isn't perfect, but I do use it, and I think it's the best we've got. whole idea of developing it was to score post-op patients and see if there are ways we can predict and reduce recurrence of Crohn's. Now we live in an era of several trials showing that anti-TNF and immunomodulators combo gives you lowest recurrence rate, Most patients who have recurrence do so within the first five years of surgery. This next study looked at Crohn's patients' clinical and surgical post-op recurrence rate, looking if anti-TNF therapy makes a difference. Not the first study to do this, but let's take a look. The title is Rates of Post-op Recurrence of Crohn's Disease and Effects of Immunosuppressive and Biologic Therapies, and it's published in CGH. It's a retrospective study from Belgium and France, and it appears that for Rutger's score I2 or lower, treatments with anti-TNF or immunomodulators for patients who are asymptomatic didn't reduce the risk of clinical recurrence. For I3 and I4 disease, it made a marginal difference. Now, this is a retrospective study, of course, and drawing major conclusions from it would be not wise, but at least retrospectively, it looks like the current strategy of leaving people with minor evidence of recurrence alone is probably the right thing to do. And to those with more severe disease, it appears that anti-TNF and immunomodulators may help, but not much. So, for asymptomatic post-op recurrence, it appears that you don't gain much by treating. Conclusion states, quote, This surprising result challenges the benefit of endoscopy-guided therapy modification in patients with score of I2. No effect on forcomic clinical post-op recurrence or need for new surgery was observed when immunosuppressant or biologic treatment was started after the postoperative endoscopy end quote. I think we kind of knew this but truth sometimes is easy to ignore since we want to help patients long term keep in mind that this is a retrospective study again and has limitations in randomized trials the data was on the side of treatment i think there's a lot of work that needs to happen in this space in terms of teasing out the best approach and figuring out who are the most appropriate patients to get treatment and who is okay to watch. Many times when you're moving a polyp cold, you get a little bit of a a white nubbin behind. Apparently the scientific name of this nubbin nipple looking thing in the middle of a polypectomy is Cold Snare Defect Protrusion (CSDP). It's a combo of submucosa and some muscularis mucosa all cinched together. This next study from GIE looked at association of post-polypectomy finding and polyp fragmentation, the way pathologists examine the polyp tissue. I'm not sure why this is a major issue, since it's not very often that pathologists actually write that the margins of polypectomy were polyp-free, especially, clearly if you're doing a piecemeal polypectomy. And there are always issues with polyp fragmentation in the channel and polyp tissue orientation during fixation. But anyway, this was a retrospective study done, at Sapporo, Japan. Out of a thousand or so polyps they looked at, 116 or 11% had this CSDP nipple, and there was a significant association between finding the CSDP and polyp fragmentation. And the larger the polyp, the more likely you were to cause CSDP to form. This is not a surprise to any endoscopist. Most of the time, nothing to worry about. The only time you really think about this is when your polyp turns out to be malignant. But as authors point out, and we all kind of know this, the rate of malignancy in polyps less than 10 mm is very, very low. What the authors say is that cold-snare polypectomy should be avoided for malignant polyps. Huh, not sure how their data supports any of this, but that's what they say. More practice updates. This one is more useful since more and more checkpoint inhibitors are being used for cancer patients, and GI docs all over are starting to see complications. And it's not just colitis, it's also hepatitis. So let's look at the clinical practice update on diagnosis and management of immune checkpoint inhibitor colitis and hepatitis expert review. It's quite thorough. I'll read to you the 12 BPAs here for your education. Two figures in the paper are probably worth adding to your reference file, just in case you don't see this on a regular basis and need a guide. One is the diarrhea scale. And this is taken from oncology, of course. But if you're not familiar with it, probably look at it. It's pretty clear from the BPA that this scale is pretty useless in clinical practice. But figure one in the BPA is quite useful. Really, really well done. Easy to follow algorithm of what to do for any situation with diarrhea based on symptoms and endoscopic findings. Let's go over the practice advice real quick. One, rule out infectious diarrhea. Remember, these patients are often on other chemo or other immunosuppressants, so not surprising that they will have C. diff or something else. 2. If more than 4 bowel movements a day, also check inflammatory stool markers, your calprotectin and lactoferrin. No preference of one over the other. 3. If diarrhea is severe enough, do endoscopy before you start steroids. This is good advice for sure. 4. Consider imaging study if there are alarm features such as pain, fever, bleeding, but don't do this for diarrhea alone. 5. Remember diarrhea may be mild one day and then get quite severe quickly, so don't delay diagnosis. 6. ICI colitis will respond to systemic steroids, half a milligram to two milligrams per kilogram daily, with a four to six week taper is a good dosing regimen. And if resistance to steroids, consider infliximab or vedolizumab. 7. Budesonate doesn't work for this, so don't even bother with it. 8. If colitis develops, that doesn't mean that the checkpoint inhibitor you chose is off the treatment list completely forever. 9. If your cancer patient has IBD, they are at an increased risk for immune checkpoint inhibitor colitis ICI. And now we move on from the diarrhea, let's talk about hepatitis. 10. If you start treatment with ICI, check liver labs and don't forget about hepatitis B, of course. 11. If AST ALT are 1 to 3 upper limit of normal or total Billy slightly up, just monitor. But if your AST ALT go up to 3 to 5 times upper limit of normal, you need to hold the drug until the labs get better a little bit. And 12. If the liver tests go up 5 to 10 upper limits of normal, a full on hepatitis you really need to stop the drug and maybe call your hepatologist friend and start patient on 1-2 to mg per kilogram methylprednisolone or equivalent. If that doesn't work, consider azathioprine or even Celsap. That's it. Now you know everything you need to know to manage patients with immune checkpoint inhibitor colitis and hepatitis. Thanks to Mike Dugan from MGH and Yinghong Wang from MD Anderson for putting this together another post-polypectomy bleeding paper titled Management of Outcomes of Bleeding Within 30 Days of Colonic Polypectomy in a Large, Real-Life, Multi-Center Cohort Study. We know that post-polypectomy bleeding is a problem. Many times folks are even admitted to the hospital due to fear of massive blood loss. And of course, many of them get second colonoscopy and get some clips, epi, etc. This was a retrospective study of 548 patients with bleeding within 30 days of index polypectomy. They looked at outcomes of delayed post bleeds, and here's what they found. Out of over 500 patients, quarter of patients presented with bleeding had no intervention at all. 70% of patients had colonoscopy, with and only one in five of those colonoscopies actually found the source of actually bleeding. Half of those had a visible vessel with a clot, and a third had a fibrin hematine plug found at the bleeding site. Here are the factors you need to think about beforehand when you're thinking about an intervention for post-polypectomy bleed, at least based on this paper. Decrease in hemoglobin of over 2 grams, hemodynamic instability, use of antithrombotic agent comorbidities that were associated with a need for intervention. Basic stuff. Also, again, this isn't new, but good to see. If you use the hot snare to remove a pedunculated polyp, here is where you run into trouble and you may experience a bleed. Classic. Say you decide to do nothing and patient is stable. What are the chances of rebleeding if you don't do a colonoscopy? In this paper, it was less than 6%, so that's also reassuring. Conclusion by the author's state. I quote, colonoscopy is often overused for patients with delayed postpolypectomy bleeding. End quote. I reluctantly agree. We as endoscopists can't help it, really. We feel like we caused a problem and we ought to fix it, don't you think? It's hard to do nothing, but seems to be the right thing to do in about half of these patients. There was an interesting randomized trial. Someone used hypothermic oxygenated machine perfusion of livers to see if that improves outcomes prior to transplant. This was published in the England Journal, April 15th issue. 160 patients were randomized to receive either static cold storage liver versus A machine perfused liver, primary outcome was non-anastomatic biliary stricture within six months of transplant. The outcomes seem good. 6% versus 18% non-anastomatic biliary stricture occurred, which is quite a big reduction. 27% of patients with regular transplant had post-reperfusion syndrome compared to 12% of machine perfused livers. But did this really make any clinical impact? Did these patients get less procedures or less retransplants or were there less deaths. And apparently there was a huge reduction in patients needing stenting of their bile ducts. So that's good. 5 in machine perfusion group versus 14 in regular transplant group. Here's something interesting and a point I almost missed. So if you're thinking this is like you take the liver out of the donor, hook it up to a machine, and keep it hooked up till the recipient is ready to receive the liver. No, that's not how it works. Actually, the liver spends just as much time being dead outside the body in both cases, but in the case of machine-assisted oxygenation, remember this is done at 10 degrees Celsius, pretty cool, the idea being that in two hours after you hook up liver to this fancy machine, you restore mitochondrial and intrahepatic ATP and reduce oxygen radical damage. So that's how it works. My only hope is that the machine doesn't cost as much as the liver transplant. There's more than one way to skin a gallbladder, apparently. Traditional laparoscopic cholecystectomy sometimes is unfeasible in a very sick patient with cholecystitis. Putting a drain in percutaneously used to be the only solution until someone decided to put a drain internally with assistance of EOS. This next study looked at 60 patients who underwent eus guided gallbladder drainage and compared them to laparoscopic cholecystectomy looking at one-year follow-up data Clinical success rate was a bit lower in the US guided gallbladder drainage, and two patients in the US arm died versus zero with surgery. But remember, this was a propensity score paper, not a randomized trial. Authors conclude that the outcomes are comparable. Not a bad argument, considering that most US patients didn't have any other option. Now, the question is can you take the gallbladder out later? This wasn't studied in the paper, but looking at the literature, it appears that you can remove the gallbladder, no problem, afterwards. I think EOS-guided gallbladder drainage option is good, and I'm glad that it's possible to drain the gallbladder this way. Only caveat I can find here is that it is possible that sometimes surgery would be declined, even though it probably could have been done in centers where there are interventional GI docs who do this type of drain. Also, as far as I know, these stents are not approved by FDA at this point, just yet. One more thought I had is that if patients is too unstable for surgery, it is likely that they may be too unstable for EOS as well. Hmm. I do love good clinical questions. And after 50 episodes of this podcast, I hope you know that. I also like questions that have ready-made answers and are relatively easy to get. This is the case with the next paper titled, The Prevalence of Small Bowel Polyps on Video Capsule Endoscopy in Patients with Sporadic, Duodenal, or Ampullary Adenomas, also out of GIE March issue. I'm sure you've all encountered a few cases of sporadic adenomas in the duodenum and ampulla. Just doing upper endoscopy, you see a flat polyp or something like that and it turns out to be an adenoma. These are relatively rare, incidentally found polyps most of the time, outside of familial syndromes. But do you need to go look for more polyps in these patients? We do know something about these duodenal polyps from patients with familial syndromes, FAP and Peutz-Jäger syndromes, as these patients don't really have polyps in the small bowel other than in the duodenum. And of course, they have lots of polyps in the colon. So this study looked at video capsule studies of the small bowel in patients with sporadic adenomas of the duodenum. Meaning, do you find any more polyps in the small bowel or not? That's the question. This was a single center prospective study from Sydney, Australia, looking at 200 patients in their 60s, half of whom had duodenal adenomas that were found initially, and half were controls. Good news is that out of 200 patients in the study, they did not find a single small bowel polyp. But there was a difference in the number of colonic polyps found with this method. And if you had a sporadic duodenal adenoma, you are more likely to have colonic polyps. And by the way, one 84-year-old patient did aspirate the capsule into the trachea but ultimately did okay. So this is interesting. Duodenal adenomas don't increase your risk of small bowel polyps. So conclusion here, I think after hundred patients, it's plenty for this type of study. No need to chase polyps in small bowel for incidentally found adenomas in the duodenum. You should focus on the colon instead. In this study, 18% of patients ended up with high risk adenomas in the colon compared to 5% of controls. Now that is an interesting study why can't they all be like this? Anything that Doug Rex publishes these days is probably worth a read. He is a big promoter of cold EMR, of course, specifically for large serrated lesions. I've got a soft spot for serrated polyps, so I've had to read this next paper. Title is Adverse Events and Residual Lesions Rate After Cold Endoscopic Mucosal Resection of Serrated Lesions Over 10 Millimeters. It is a retrospective study of over 500 polyps, over one centimeter in size, averaging about 17 millimeters. It appears that the technique of lifting the polyp, removing it cold piecemeal, and leaving the defect open for the most part without clipping. The residual lesion rate at follow-up was 8%. And remember, this is at center of expertise. Oh, did I mention to you that all the polyps were removed by one endoscopist? You've guessed right. It was Douglas K. Rex himself from Indiana. The major argument in this paper that says ulcerated lesions are really well suited for cold piecemeal resection, with or without lift. And if you've got a good snare, there's never a need to reach out for the hot pedal. Now, the critics, of course, are going to go after the residual polyprate here, 8%. That's pretty high. The paper states that there may be technical reasons why the higher rate was encountered compared to published studies. One of the arguments was that maybe submucosal cords, you know, the nipple thing that we talked about before could be the source of residual polyp tissue. And I think there was a study like this before kind of claiming it. I don't know if I believe it. Median follow-up was about a year rather than six months, by the way. So maybe tiny remnants grow a bit and now are visible. I like this argument. And maybe this is an argument to prolong interval after resection of a large polyp from six months to 12 months. So you can actually see the residual tissue a little better. So if 8% rate of residual polyp is acceptable to you, and I think it is, called EMR for large serrated polyps is the way to go. One more paper from Doug Rex Group. First author of this one is Christopher Lee, and it's also from GIE. What do you do if you find a large polyp in an 80-year-old and you can't get it out yourself? Thinking maybe you need an expert to do it, is it safe? Well, here are the outcomes of polypectomies of polyps over 2 centimeters in patients over 80, comparing those to under 80 years old. Nice and simple. Adverse event rate was similar at about 2 to 3%. There were no perforations in over 80 group, but that's about 167 patients over 80, so not that many. And only 3% had bleeding. Average polyp size was 29 millimeters, so these are very big polyps. And 12% of those had high-grade dysplasia. One comment that was made that if you get a patient with a large polyp, go ahead and remove all the polyps that you might find. Don't just leave those behind. And in these patients, they've found quite a few synchronous polyps, by the way. Do remove all these polyps since follow-up rates are relatively low in this age group, and that way you don't have to torture an 80-year-old again with PrEP if you don't have to. Certainly when I'm 80 years old, I don't want to do this multiple times. So it appears that removal of large polyps is relatively safe in octogenarians. I like many of the studies coming out from this group in Indiana, mainly because they ask good questions, and they always admit in their discussion that their data, as they put it, anecdotal, retrospective, and really their experience, which is what they're sharing with us. And I think that's pretty valuable and just plain honest. Well, that's it for episode 50 of GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast. Thank you to all of you who've left reviews on iTunes, I really appreciate it, and it really helps others discover the podcast. If you have colleagues who you think would benefit from listening to the podcast, please share it with them. The more people listen, the more people can send me papers to read. Speaking of which, if you think there's a paper out there that I should read, send it to me at info at Thanks again. Bye-bye.